0: You have synesthesia, and he says, "No, I do not have that condition." I said, "A colleague of yours said that the you note know, E flat was sort of a light green," and he said, "No, it's orange. Oh, but I don't have that condition." <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, I'm Christine. And I'm Gracie. We both have a brain condition called synesthesia, and we love it. It blends different senses together and makes our
2: lives richer and more colorful. But my brother Ian, he's a skeptic.
3: No, it is totally real.
1: (laughs) So on this show, we meet incredible people and explore their amazing stories about how synesthesia is changing the world. From artists to musicians to thought leaders and scientists, People with synesthesia are everywhere, and they make our lives more colorful.
3: Colorful. More. more. I hate saying <laughs> Welcome to, to SynPod. It worked. <laughs> Jesse, you laughing makes it harder. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Sin Pod. I am Gracie Olmsted, and I am here with my co-hosts, Christine Olmsted. Hello. And Ian Reed.
3: How's it going, guys?
1: And we have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing Greta Berman. She has been on faculty at Juilliard since 1979 in the School of Liberal Arts. She is a specialist in 19th and 20th century American and European paintings and in the interrelationship between music and the visual arts. She holds a BA from Antioch College, an MA from the University of Stockholm, and a PhD from Columbia University. Man,
3: what what a resume. It's It's
1: very impressive. (laughs) So Greta, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So to start, I think we were all curious, what first drew you to the study of art and to art curation specifically? I went to the High School of Music and Art in New York, which is now called
0: LaGuardia School of the Arts. But at the time, it was a school for people who were especially talented in music or in art. And I went as a music major. And my major was voice, and I still sing in chorus. But they gave us a lot of art history, and there were many students that became my friends who were artists. And I started to get very interested in art. So when I went to Antioch, I became an art major and spent four years as an art studio major. And then I decided for various reasons to go to Sweden to continue my graduate work, simply because I wanted to be there. And while there, I decided to get an MA in art history. And then I came back and got my PhD in art history from Columbia. So that's what drew me to art and music. Hmm.
3: At what point did you decide to specifically focus, at least an area of your study, on the interconnectedness of music and art?
0: I always was interested in it, but uh, after I got my degree uh, at Columbia, I got a job at Juilliard. And Juilliard, as you know, is the premier school of music, but it's also drama and dance. And uh, just to correct something, there's not a school of liberal arts, there's a department. <laughs> we we would like to be a school, but no, we're just a department within the conservatory. Gotcha. And yeah. there I had the opportunity to teach art history to musicians and to kind of carve out a specialty where my two greatest interests lay. I have a funny answer to that in a way, because it arose out of my love for music and art. And originally art historians thought that synesthesia meant Artists who were influenced by music or vice versa. And one day several people I knew told me that's metaphorical and people do that, but there's actually a neurological phenomenon which has some people who actually see music or actually hear colors. And at that point, I became very intrigued and I started reading everything I could get my hands on and getting into it. But about your question about am I a synesthete, I would have told you no some years ago. My friend Carol Steen, whom I think you're going to be interviewing also, calls me an honorary synesthete. (laughs) And I think maybe i have glimmerings of it and i think maybe everybody does to
1: some degree yeah so when did you first meet Carol Steen? we actually talked to her last week oh good she talked a lot about her friendship with you and so i'd love to hear how you remember meeting her and how that shaped your career well, I was doing research on synesthesia and somebody
0: told me there's an artist in New York who has synesthesia and writes a lot about it. Um, she's very easy and approachable and so on. Why don't you just contact her? So I did. And we had coffee and we've worked together and been on the board. Well, I, I've recently... Uh, Accepted being on the board of the Synesthesia Association. But before that, just was active in it and co curated an
1: exhibition with her, presented some panels together with her. It sounds like you were already researching Mm -hmm. synesthesia, though. So, what were some of the things that propelled you toward that as a field of study within art criticism? and, And what were some of the things you were looking at? at that time when you were researching it? My master's thesis was on a French symbolist
0: artist named Odilon Redon, (laughs) R-E-D-O-N. So he loved music and actually was an amateur musician in the true sense of the word, that somebody who loves music played the violin. And I always had the feeling that his paintings were musical. It's so tricky now to know who was and who wasn't as innocent. And as I've been working on it now for, wow, over 20 years. It's incredible. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Things have changed so much. So I would have said he wasn't a synesthete, and now I say, well, maybe he
3: was. It's very exciting to talk to a, a, another non-synesthete on this podcast because I think <laughs> <laughs> I finally have a comrade. <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, as someone who would have kind of your whole life until maybe recently said that you don't have synesthesia, how have you seen the acceptance or skepticism towards synesthesia change? since when you first started studying it to today?
0: Wonderful question. When I started studying it, people were sort of like, why would you study such a weird kind of thing? They thought only one in 100,000 people had it, and then they thought one in 25,000. Today, they think one in 11, Hmm. maybe. Oh, wow. And when I first mentioned it at Juilliard years ago, nobody knew what it was. Now, when I mention it, I say, how many of you know what synesthesia is? They almost all know. So it's gone from something that was considered weird, odd, interesting. They called it a condition and that made people think that maybe it was an illness or something was wrong with them. So I think that prevented a lot of people from talking about it, and Carol probably told you her favorite story when she was little. Her best friend thought she was weird, but I think many people do that. There's some reluctance to come forward, maybe because of the stigma that was placed on it years ago, but it's certainly going away. Now I get a lot of people who are really eager to talk about it.
2: You know, you mentioned that it's tricky to pinpoint artists from the past who had synesthesia, but you did curate some very famous
0: artists who have passed away in that show. So um, our thought was that people were kind of throwing around the term synesthesia, They thought pictures in an exhibition is synesthesia or hot jazz or something like that. And there may actually be an element of it there, but we really wanted to look scientifically. And we did this at McMaster University in Canada sponsored by the neuroscience department. Three of the members of our board now are neuroscientists who have studied synesthesia. None of them is a synesthete, by the way. So Carol is now the only synesthete on the board. Maybe we need a new one. (laughs) So we kind of looked for artists that, had something in common that were synesthetic, that either we knew were synesthetic or we suspected were synesthetic. So where Kluver comes into this is that he discovered a certain number of what he called form constants. And we've now called them Kluverian forms that we look for in some of the artworks. And uh, some of them are sort of radiating circular forms. Some of them are repeated parallel diagonal forms. Uh, there's a sense of movement that happens because in my experience now, synesthesia isn't static. You don't tend to see it in one place, it tends to move quickly. It depends what kind of synesthesia you have. The other reason that synesthesia is so much more recognized now is that we've discovered there were so many more forms of synesthesia than we ever thought there were. So it can be in any of the five senses. I've had students who taste music quite literally. I. Uh, Want some time to do some research on that, cause I suspect it's the ones who play instruments by mouth. It was an oboist who started to do that. She liked a particular Mozart work because it tasted like chocolate to her, mm. and there are people of course who uh, taste words. You of course know the famous James Wanerton in England who is, Quite a character. Mm-hmm. But to get back to your original question, the criteria choose artists who were genuine synesthetes in our estimation and not just things that might or might not be. So we chose for this Joan Mitchell, whom we know was a synesthete, Charles Birchfield, who we're pretty sure was a synesthete, Carol Steen, who we know is Marcia Smilak, who is one, I think, of the most incredible and underknown great artists around. She's a photographer, calls herself a reflectionist. She's simply remarkable. Some Kandinsky, some Van Gogh, and those were a little bit more like up for grabs. Sure. Nobody was positive that they were, because obviously you can test somebody who's alive for synesthesia, but for somebody who isn't, you have to use other means to discover it. Oh, and there was another criterion, too. They had to be genuinely Good. (laughs) It couldn't just
2: be anybody (laughs) emailing you, hey, I have
3: synesthesia, pick me. (laughs) Couldn't be Bobby with his Kluver stick figures.
0: (laughs) They have had a lot of conferences where they kind of draw the music and Hmm. they Hmm. put them up and they call it an art exhibit. Hmm. But this was something we're very proud of, very professional art exhibit.
1: So what were some of the other criteria? Was it primarily diary writings, letters? What were you looking for to kind of build up the clues that gave you the larger picture?
0: All of those things. Carol has sort of tricky questions that she asks people. And then she knows. Hmm. You know, It's like, how do you see the days of the week? Or how do you see the months? Because Synesthetes: some see them vertically. Some see them in a circle. But they're very clear. Marcia Smilak sees Sundays as higher than Saturdays, for example. Some people see days of the week in terms of colors. I try to find out what it is they see, how they see it, what it is they hear. And of course, I mean, the uh, main thing is the coming together of the senses. So do you see any colors when you hear this? Mm -hmm. Right.
3: When you first realize that, oh, synesthesia is something that is actually like a thing that people experience, not just some metaphor that they use to describe a relationship, Were you initially skeptical or did you immediately accept it? It just sounds so fantastic and fantastical (laughs) that sometimes the response is, oh, they must be making it up.
0: I never was skeptical of it, partially because the two people who brought it up to me were my colleague who is a composer and came to Juilliard from Mexico where he had a degree in medicine. Wow. And is trained in neurology. Right. Well, yeah. And I so respect him right. and I thought, wow, that's amazing. And the other was my ex husband, who was a neuroscientist, very well known neuroscientist at the time. And he brought me a whole bunch of books mm-hmm. and he said, Read these. Mm-hmm. So no, I I was not skeptical.
2: A believer from the beginning.
3: A believer from the beginning. Perfect. This podcast is brought to you by Distant Moon. Distant Moon is one of the fastest growing film production and media companies in the United States. Look, if you run a business or nonprofit or work at an ad agency... You know how hard it is to connect with new audiences. We're not talking about meaningless views or vanity metrics. We're talking real, memorable audience experiences where the audience actually remembers your brand or movement's story. Over the last decade of crafting video for some of the largest brands in the world, we've realized a key fact. Audiences don't care until they realize that we the storytellers care. That's why we're passionate about creating content that moves the heart, strengthens the mind, and makes the world a better place for everyone. If that sounds good to you, we'd love to work with you. Visit us and get in touch at distantmoonmedia.com. That's distantmoonmedia.com. What were some of the books that you found most interesting in those early years as you uh, were discovering the, the details about synesthesia?
0: uh the man who mistook his wife for a hat hmm. richard saito who mm-hmm. you actually have had a chance to interview right yeah. simon baron who who is i think the cousin of that really crazy comedian Sacha Baron-Cohen. sasha baron oh yeah. there you go.
1: I wondered about that <laughs> he is
0: but simon baron cohn very serious neuroscientist and really wonderful
2: Carol had mentioned in her chat with us that you have this talent for being able to tell if one of your students is synesthetic even without them knowing about it. Well, it's not
0: really magic. I had a Chinese student. I think he may have turned 30 now. I'm not quite sure. And he's just written, I think, his 10th symphony. The guy is prodigious. He said, I don't have synesthesia, but when I look at numbers... The number nine is a little old lady with long braids. The number eight is a very shy, chubby woman. And I said, Right, you don't have synesthesia. <laughs> so that's, of course, the other thing that you get with synesthesia, doesn't everybody? Right. Mm-hmm. What kind of synesthesia do you have?
1: I actually have ordinal linguistic personification so I see numbers as people and I thought it was just this very weird strange thing I'd been doing ever since I was a child I didn't realize it was synesthesia till I was I think 21 so yeah I know a lot of people who haven't realized it until they were
0: 50, and I think Carol Steen is among them, hmm. and maybe Marcia Smiloff, because people didn't really talk about it. They didn't right. know that much about it.
2: Well, I love uh, Richard's book, and I'm just finishing Wednesday's Indigo Blue, and in it he has his chart of the 50 different cross-modals of different types of synesthesia. So I've ticked off nine or ten different kinds, but it's all color and sound-related ones. So I see color and movement when I listen to music. Um, I'm a painter myself, and so that influences my work. But I also have ordinal linguistic personification, so numbers are people and have personalities. They have colors. And days of the week, months, they're all colored and in a pattern um, but for you
3: 8 is a little old lady, right?
2: All of them are young people, it's not an
1: old lady, but 8 is one of the kindest numbers. Yeah, as you noted, historically there both wasn't a lot of research and knowledge about this, and it was probably likely that people felt some sort of stigma associated with what they experienced. So, I'm very curious to hear more about your experience in looking into the artwork and life of Vincent Van Gogh. And recognizing synesthesia and what you saw, could you tell us a little bit of that story of the first inclinations leading up to the final realizations on that journey? I'm still hoping to publish something major on this. If you
0: guys have any leads, let me know. It's not an easy time to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm not worried about letting it out, it's not secret. In the beginning, people suspected that Van Gogh might have synesthesia. And several people said it based on the fact that he took piano lessons. At one point he wrote that he took piano lessons in order to get to know the colors he was using better. Mm -hmm. So this piano teacher he went to apparently kicked him out because he insisted that a certain note was E. And Said, well, this guy's crazy, get out of here. So, everybody then for years based the idea that Van Gogh had synesthesia on that story. And I thought that was kind of weak. You know, it, it could be, it couldn't be. But I started reading all of his letters. And in fact, I've now taught courses at Juilliard that are called Focus on a Major Artist, in which I've focused on only Van Gogh.
2: I want to take that class. And
0: gone into very, very great depth in Van Gogh. So I've read all the writings I could. Wow. I think he had synesthesia in every one of his senses. If you look at his paintings, the thickness and so on, and sometimes he would put the oil paint on with his fingers and so on, so there's no question of touch. Sight, of course, is there, but it's the sight, touch. He writes tons of times about the music of the paintings and the music of the colors. It's not just that one episode. I and mean, it's full of, of those kinds of things. Then, to me, one of the finishing touches for me was at one he tried to eat his paints. And somebody wrote about it and said there were poisonous things in it and he was trying to commit suicide. And I don't buy that. I think he tried to eat his paints because they looked delicious to him. And he wanted to imbibe them. So what am I forgetting? Touch? sight, sound. Oh, smell. Yes. And he describes smells in his paintings. In fact, in the potato eaters, the very early one, he describes the smell, the smoky smell. You can feel it. And he says, the peasants, if they have potatoes that still have the smell of manure, that's fine. You can almost smell it. And then it's right there in the painting with the steaming coffee and so on. So I think he had it in every one of his senses. I think he had synesthesia overload. And I think that drove him mad together with whatever else was wrong with him. I think he was probably bipolar. But all of this stuff, I mean, just imagine. The intensity
1: that was going on in this format and nobody understood it. Mm-hmm. It seems like the way in which we see synesthesia is often as gift, but it also comes sometimes for some people with negative side effects that they have to learn to deal with. Have you encountered in other artists kind of the gift and curse of synesthesia? In most of them, hmm. certainly Joan Mitchell. From what I read about. Was an
0: alcoholic and paranoid and had many, many problems. She was my Dedeker. She couldn't forget anything, which in itself is a kind of curse because there are things you want to forget. Many of the artists I've known have had that. Marsha Smilak used to like to live in a small place in Martha's Vineyard because She didn't have sensory overload. Living in, say, New York City or Washington, D.C., can be a curse for somebody. Can't stop these multiple sensations.
3: Have you noticed in the students that you work with who show signs of synesthesia or who know that they have synesthesia that there are sometimes or often corresponding either learning disabilities or things like autism or, or or things that, that, that might uh, sometimes be seen to go along. I mean, a lot of the people that we've talked with.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm dyslexic and dysgraphic, and we've interviewed several people who have dyslexia specifically. Since you come into contact with a lot of very talented synesthetes, have you encountered that in your
0: work? Not in the sense that it's affected their learning for the most part The synesthetes that I have known at Juilliard have been outstanding students and not autistic at all. Dyslexic is possible. Einstein was dyslexic. (laughs) Maybe dyslexic is not such a bad thing to be. It depends. When you ask that question, I mean, synesthetes tend to do things in a way that's different from... Ordinary people. Right. So that's one way that you can tell. I can, not always, but sometimes I can tell music that sounds synesthetic to me. And it's because it has quirkiness, layering. You can sort of sense it.
1: Has that come from studying the work of composers who you know were synesthetic? Yes, in fact,
0: I was supposed to be, we didn't have the virus, in Vienna giving a talk about one composer and two musicians. The composer is a man named Aaron J. Kernis, K-E-R-N-I-S. And it was funny because I heard his piece out here in Woodstock, we have a chamber music festival and he was in the audience. He's, I guess, a middle-aged man. He's younger than me, so I consider him a young man. They keep telling me I'm old, but I, I don't know how that happened. And, uh, he was sitting there and after it was over, I went up to him and I said, are you synesthetic? And he said, yes. Just kind of like, uh, you know, or do you have brown hair? (laughs) (laughs) And then afterwards, I looked at the rest of his music, and I found incredible stuff. I think he may be one of my next projects, too, because most of his works are named for colors or shapes or foods, or things like that.
3: What was the piece that you heard, and what was it about it that tipped you off that he might be synesthetic?
0: I think it was a string quartet. Something about the layering, where you hear different sounds and quirky sounds that come in that are kind of unexpected. And that would be this idea of mingling of the senses. Hmm.
1: So you're forming your own form constants, it seems like, but with music and not just visual. So maybe in the future, we will have the Berman forms as well as the Kluverian forms. (laughs) What a wonderful idea. I would be thrilled.
3: Hey, so at this point, you probably already know that Distant Moon makes this show. I mean, we kind of talk about it every episode, but what you might not know is that we're hiring. That's right, we're looking for talented artists and technicians to join our team and help us create cutting edge content that makes the world a better place. So if you have experience in video editing, cinematography, writing, producing, sound recording, coffee brewing, or (laughs) heck, anything related to film, hit us up and we'd love to chat. We're one of the fastest growing media production companies on the East Coast, and we're always on the lookout for the next great team member who will help us change the world. If that's you, give us a shout at contact at distantmoonmedia.com. That's contact at distantmoonmedia.com.
2: You know you're an expert in 19th and 20th century art. I would love to hear more if you um, have done you know, more research into artists that you think may have been synesthetic. Not that you're definitively saying that they are, but I would love to know if there are any others that, uh, that we could look at and, and
0: um, mm-hmm. uh, sure. see. Sure. I think Arthur Duff probably because he paints the sound of the fog and it's so beautifully depicted. Maybe some of the artists around him, possibly Marston Hartley. I don't know about Georgia O'Keeffe. Maybe, maybe not. She does paint some things called music, but I'm somehow not convinced by her. We're pretty sure about Birchfield now, and the more I look, the more I'm sure. And the more I read his journals, I don't think Cézanne was, I don't think Gauguin was, I don't think Manet or Monet was, I think Odilon Redon possibly, okay. and maybe some of the other symbolists were sure. lesser known, I
1: It's interesting. I remember reading an interview you did with someone where you talked about the difference between Monet and Van Gogh and how it seemed as if Monet is painting it as he sees it, whereas there is something very different happening with Van Gogh when he paints a landscape, that there's something about the interpretation that is very different that gives the viewer something of a hint as to the difference between synesthetic vision and non-synesthetic vision?
0: Monet's idea was to scientifically break down light into its component colors. And he had said at one point he wished he had been born blind Hmm. and then suddenly been able to see so he would have no associations with it. So he wanted to be as objective as possible. I think Van Gogh was the opposite. He was as subjective as possible. Everything he saw had meaning, color, sound, smell, touch. The common idea is expressionism versus impressionism, but it's the outside versus the
3: inside. Do you think there are different eras where maybe synesthetes kind of had more of a heyday or less of a heyday?
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, we seem to see that in the 1890s and around the what we call the de siècle or the turn of the century, there seemed to be more synesthetes who came forth because there was a lot of interest in mysticism and things like that, and somehow. There's something mystical, magical about it. So in an era where people are interested in that, they're more interested in synesthesia. And by the way, I would put impressionism in the more objective scientific category. Okay. They were studying color theory and so on, cubism. Even if these guys did have synesthesia, they wouldn't have expressed it. You know, that's a thought, isn't it? What if you were a synesthetic artist and you knew that it wasn't a good thing to do? Yeah. Maybe you would do something completely counter to... I just thought of that this moment. Because you do have free will. You don't have to do it just because you see it. Right. In my experience,
2: I'm not painting my forms, I'm only using the music for color reference. And so Mm -hmm. if you were to look at my works, you might not see those forms, but I'm purely pulling color and tone. Uh And so I curate it. I'm wondering if perhaps other artists throughout history curated their synesthesia, because I don't like the forms, honestly, (laughs) that I'm seeing. I think they're ugly and I don't think they're worth showing. I don't want to paint the form, but I think they're pretty great colors, so I'll curate it mm. for my work. Right. I'd love to
0: see your
3: work if you could send oh, me a uh, website <laughs> or something. <like> that <laughs> so embarrassing. I'll send you some no, of it. Please, no, please.
0: I'd be very interested to see it. You know, you can be really miserable and paint a happy painting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. When Monet painted that painting of his wife sitting on the banks of the Seine River, and Mm -hmm. it's very beautiful and cheerful, he wrote in his diary that he wanted to drown himself in that river because he was so poor and he was so afraid that he wouldn't be able to support a child that they were going to have. Yeah. So... That's in a way what you're calling curating. I mean, he's not painting. Here I am feeling miserable. Right. But what would interest me in seeing your work would be to see if there are any forms that, despite the fact that you curate it, have commonalities with other synesthetic artists. And if you're too shy to do that, you know, take a look at some of the ones that we know are and see if there's anything that you have in
1: common. Well, I am curious because we talked to Dr. Richard Saitoic about color to the synesthete and how vibrant and rich and diverse the color palette of a synesthete tends to be. Do you also notice color differences? Do you see more or different or more vibrant color usages than you might see in other works? Yes, I think more vibrant colors usually. But... I think that's
0: less indicative than shape and line and movement. But maybe that's just because that's what Kluver studied was the shapes and didn't really go into the colors. Again, if we
1: take Van Gogh, we have
0: one of the most incredible colorists of all times.
1: Yeah. Do you have a favorite work by Van Gogh?
0: I tend to like the lesser-known ones. I like the ones where he shows patches of grass and trees and little corners of things and so on. I love his drawings. Endlessly wonderful.
3: One of the things that I'm curious about is whether the knowledge of having synesthesia also influences one's approach to their art. And I'm curious if you've ever seen a situation where a student who didn't know synesthesia suddenly approached their work either differently or started focusing on different aspects of the work once they realized that they had synesthesia.
0: Yes, quite a few of them, actually. But one very good example is Joyce Yang. Hmm. She was the youngest ever silver medalist in the Van Cliburn piano competition. And Joyce discovered that she had synesthesia, she was my student at Juilliard, and she started making color charts to learn her music. She actually made a video for me, and she's now used it to branch out in many different ways. She worked together with a dance company. She did an album called Collage, which she did together with an artist So she really took it and ran with it. I don't know how it affected her piano playing, that it was no longer just playing with piano, but incorporating all these different elements.
1: Yeah. And as a violinist, I know that memorizing is oftentimes a monumental task. And when you go into a large audition or performance, there's often a lot of fear that especially perhaps amateurs have that. What if I forget? And so I can see if you have that tool in your toolbox, then of ah, my colors will help me. It's just opening up all that auditory visual memory to help make sure that it's in place (laughs) before you're in that position. That's that's pretty incredible. Yes, it was very helpful
0: for her. She said, Interestingly, that everybody figured because she was such a good pianist, she would be a good sight reader. Hmm. She said, but all those black and white notes, I had to go through them and then, you know, see what the colors were. So I couldn't sight read that well. (laughs) So there's an example of it standing in your way. Carol has this problem sometimes when we edit each other's manuscripts. If I edit in color, she's really messed up. She says, Don't do that. <laughs> That's not the color of those letters.
1: <laughs> I can't read it. That's right. It's very funny. So Back in 2013, I discovered an article you wrote for the Juilliard Journal about a conference you had attended. It was put together by, I think, the organization Art Beyond Sight and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it, it was emphasizing the experiences of those who have supposed disabilities, whether they are blind or have some other disability that might impair their ability to experience art. But you had some beautiful quotes in there. Opera director Peter Sellers told you in the audience that the dis and disability isn't helpful. It's just a different kind of ability. And you write that wounds sensitize us to the world they let in light, cutting into the armor we wear just to get through life, which is so beautiful. But I thought this reminded me so much of some of the conversations we've had with synesthetes that... A lot of their life journey is turning something that the world sees as a disability into an ability and then figuring out how to use perhaps what feels like a wound to let in light, to become more artistic, to draw people into a new, more mystical experience of the world. So I was wondering whether you think even for non-synesthetes, there's aspects of this lesson we could all learn. We all probably have disabilities that we're working through. For sure. i have forgotten about that. You're a very good researcher
0: to find that. I didn't remember I'd written that. You know that there was a blind painter that I met there who's written a book. He had become blind when he was very young. He had seen originally and I don't remember whether it was an accident or an illness, but he painted realistic portraits of what people looked like and the way he did it he would go into a store and he would say which colors he wanted he would have them marked and so on and would do things and would touch the parts of their face mm-hmm. and then translate it with the colors that he wanted to have it was remarkable mm-hmm. and I asked him are you synesthetic and he said of course said, how could he not be So, that's the long answer to yes, I think it could help those people who are not blind and not disabled. I do a lot of yoga. I don't know if you've done yoga, but they talk about opening up and opening your heart. And when you do that, you let things in. And you might find, as I said, that everybody has synesthesia to some degree. And Carol always demonstrates that she's done a lot of guest lectures for my classes at Juilliard, and she'll play a very high note and say, "Which color is that? And which color is this?" And Inevitably, the high note is a light color, yellow or something. The low note is a dark color, like black. To see, you all have
1: synesthesia, and we all have forms of it to some degree. I think what you're getting at, too, is something Sellers said that you mentioned is he said the giant lie is normalcy. And have you found that to be true as a teacher and an art critic? Oh, absolutely. Somebody once said to me
0: the definition of someone normal is someone you don't know very well. <laughs> yeah.
2: I like that.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Are there any current projects that you're working on pertaining to synesthesia or or perhaps just art history in general that um, you can give us a teaser of or um, we'd love to hear? I'm really
0: not right this minute because I'm very deeply engaged in teaching a course for Juilliard called Art of the U.S. Mm. I don't have a hot new synesthesia topic except except for Van Gogh, which is always on my mind.
3: Mm.
1: Right. It's going to be on my mind now, too. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I hope you
2: write the book, because I'll <laughs> be anxiously awaiting. <laughs> Thank you.
3: Um, Alana sent you a link to uh, some of Christine's art.
0: Okay. am looking now. Oh, yeah. Right on the cover, there's a one that has lines and little circles of red and yellow and kind of almost like neural lines there is, uh, I think, very much like what some uh, Kandinsky has done. Yeah, that piece
2: is called Let It Hold Your Hand. Uh. I had lost five loved ones in my college roommate to weird, strange deaths in a short period of time within about a year and a half. And so I made a whole series about them and all of these pieces are representative of my relationship to one of these loved ones. But this piece in particular um, was about my roommate and the dividing lines, those white lines represent our lives. Wow. We all have our paths and none of our paths are straight and we zigzag and we cross and you never know when someone's line is going to get cut off or if you'll see them again. And... Um, so that's what the dividing lines mean to me.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful, and it's very much along the lines of what we were talking about with Van Gogh and in the inward kind of feelings and the subjectivity. You're not showing forms that you see outwardly, but you're trying to project what it is you feel.
2: Right. Yeah, and Carol used the term that I believe her friend... Had coined, which was internal landscapes. Uh huh. So that resonated with me very much. So yeah, and <laughs> look like, oh, at yes. some more here.
3: You know, and we'll put we'll put some of these paintings up on uh, the the notes page for the show. But you know, when you're looking at a piece of art, what are the types of forms that that you might be looking at or, or seeing in a work of art? Uh, are, are they mainly the clover the forms, or are there other forms that? that kind of indicate synesthesia, like pulling through the art? Um, or what are, what are you looking at or seeing when you are analyzing a work Well,
0: of art? the clever forms are important, but I keep coming back to this idea of layering. I'm looking now on one where she's standing in front of two paintings. There's a feeling of dimensionality there of these lines being on the surface and everything else going way back into space and a sense of coming back and forward. Again, I go back to that word layering because it's about the coming together of the senses. So it feels as if there are other things besides that. And also a lot of different, and I'm using this in a positive sense, quirky methods, they're not conventional. So she's scratching and doing a little bit of gold leaf and uh, surface thing over something that goes way, way back and I don't know whether that's what you meant by it, but ghost-like forms or mountains or something primeval.
2: Yeah, that's exactly the intention. And that's my style in general is very multi-layered. Most of my works have between 20 and 35 layers on them intentionally um, because all of those layers add a piece to what I'm trying to create on top. But in that series, those multi-layers are to illustrate the darknesses, the challenges, the lightness, all of the different human experiences that we have, and your line cuts through all of them at different points.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so you saw exactly what <laughs> I was going for. That's wonderful. But I, I mean, when you said you're not literally painting the forms that you see, but you're curating them, you're still painting what you're feeling right. and what you're knowing, and I like the idea of the internal landscape. It's not what you're seeing with your eyes. There are many ways to go about it. They're very beautiful and very moving. Thank you. I'll just melt into a puddle now. It was easy. If I hadn't liked it, I would have said, oh, it's very interesting. I like that right-hand corner. I've gotten pretty good at that. It speaks to me, literally. You were able to.
2: You're able to read it.
1: So thank you. I appreciate it. We can stop talking about me. (laughs) It's so fun, though, because we're able to apply everything we've talked about in a very tangible way. Yeah. 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 Well, one question we've kind of enjoyed ending the podcast with, what form of synesthesia, what crossing of modalities might they like to have that they do not have. (laughs) And I think Carol Steen said that she would love to have more of a spatial view of her calendar. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, that's what she said. So if there's any form you've ever really desired or thought it would be neat to see, even for a date, what would it be? I have tried endlessly
0: to see music, Yeah, to literally see it. Sometimes I think I do but I can't tell whether I'm, you know, sort of putting it on or if it's really happening. But I'd like to really see those colors and the music. You and me both. Let me tell you very quickly a very funny story. I don't know if Carol, did she tell you the Itzhak Perlman story? No. No. So Itzhak Perlman teaches at Juilliard greatest violinist today, probably. He is crippled because he had polio, and he goes in a sort of motorized chair now. And I see him all the time. We're friendly. And I had heard that he had synesthesia. So I've been trying to interview him. The man is so busy. So one day, Juilliard has an elevator and he gets in on the ground floor. I get in behind him and I say, Do you have seen a seizure? And he says, No, he said, I do not have that condition. Remember, we're going up the elevator. I'm hoping it'll stop at each floor. I said, A colleague of yours just said that the note E flat was sort of a light green. And his face got very red. And he said, No, it's orange there's no way that and then he goes oh but i don't have that condition (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious yeah but he is also a jokester so you don't know whether he was pulling my leg but since then he's admitted that he is indeed a synesthesia and he does have that condition
1: wow that's one of the ways I think Christine and I, when we were first explaining to Ian the difference between someone with synesthesia and someone really creative, you can say that the cello plays very bright orange notes. And to someone who's just creative, they might say, Oh, I can kind of see that. But to the person with synesthesia, their response will either be a visceral yes or a very visceral, absolutely no, not. absolutely not. It's it's something that's right. beyond just the creative and it's something they experience internally. Absolutely. It's so real to them. There's no discussing it. <laughs> Can't argue with the colors. <laughs>
3: Thanks so much for listening to our show. We're having a blast making it, but we're just getting started and we need your help. If you want more episodes and hear from some of the leading artists, thought leaders, and scientists discussing how synesthesia is shaping our world, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you can get each awesome new episode automatically delivered to you. And please leave a review. That's one of the best ways for people to find our show. This show features Christine Olmstead, Grace Olmstead, and me, Ian Reed. Our producer is Alana Varley. And the show is mixed by the reincarnation of Gordon Lightfoot, Jesse Eastman. Our title music is by Virgil Arles, with additional music by Captain and Thad Kopek. Synpod is recorded and produced by Distant Moon Media. Catch you all next week.